News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT, Pete Callender Show, the Pete Callender Show, because I think there may be multiple ones. I'm not aware of another Pete Callender. That's a lie, actually. I do know there's a, uh, there's a, somebody in Germany, I think, named Pete Callender, but he pronounces it totally differently. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. You can email Pete at thepetecallendershow.com. Also, I am pretty much uh, on Twitter all the all the time. So you can hit me up at Pete Callender on Twitter as well. We have lots of fun on Twitter. We are got this from App Patriot Girl. Talking in the last hour, we were discussing, uh, based on a call from a fellow named Paul, who asked about can he get compensation, essentially, for the sick time that he was out with COVID. Uh, and while there were programs, thank you everybody who, who called in to, and everybody basically is saying the same thing, that there were various programs that were in place earlier and, and the employers got to seek federal funds to compensate them for paying you. But I don't know how you maintain that program and it doesn't sound like it still is operational. Um, I don't know how you could have maintained that during Omicron. I mean, everybody was out sick for... 10 days. Um, but at Patriot Girl said, I had COVID in 2020. My employer did get funds to cover my 10 days. I had to provide documentation of my positive test results. I got uh, this email from Tim, who owns Old Grouch's military surplus up in the mountains uh, of uh, Western North Carolina in Waynesville. And uh, another thing that happened to me was banks only processing the PPP loans for people who already had accounts. And putting people already in debt to them in, to the front of the uh, people who are already in debt to the banks got put to the front of the line, thereby using the money to essentially guarantee their existing loans. This left only online lenders who did higher risk lending as the sources for anyone else to apply for a PPP loan where it was all online with no prior relationship, making fraud easy. But because I ran my business without debt and my bank was in the process of being taken over by another bank. I couldn't even apply the first for the first round when my business was actually shut down by the state, and I could have used it. I was uh, I was aware of Tim's situation as well, and and it, it was very similar to my own. I was I got laid off in Asheville about two weeks before everything started going crazy. So this was January, twenty twenty, and. So I'm laid off prior to the pandemic, so I can't get any of the pandemic unemployment. And uh, then I launch my own company to do my podcast, the LLC. I create all of that. And because I went live with that and filed all the paperwork about two weeks before Cooper shut everything down and two weeks before the state of emergency was declared and all of that, I couldn't get a PPP loan turned into a grant. I couldn't get that. Because I wasn't an existing LLC. I also, okay, I also had no paychecks to write for anybody. I was a sole proprietor. So it's, I mean, myself, yes, but yeah, I could not take advantage of any of those types of programs because I didn't qualify because I was brand new. So yeah, I kind of got, but you know, I, it was a heck of a motivator. It really was. I was, well, I would say I was out there hitting the pavement trying to, drum up business and advertisers, but um, it was mainly emails and phone calls because nobody wanted to meet me in person at that point. No, and I had great advertisers, great clients up there in the mountains that uh, they stuck with me. They they And 
helped me launch the show. Tim was one of them at, uh, at the Old Grouch's Military Surplus, which is a great shop, by the way. And he's not paying me to tell you that. Anyway, um, things to know as the primary election season begins. I'm going to shift gears here from COVID stuff to the, uh, from COVID fraud to elections and election fraud. So first off, you need to know that if you want to vote absentee, you can request your absentee ballot now in North Carolina. You can do that. And uh, this is for the May 17th election. This is a primary election. But because um, the the lawsuits and the redistricting and the COVID and the what, what, and the hey, hey, whatever, they so this is a May 17th primary, but also some municipal elections are going to be held on the primary date. And uh, so, folks... You got to check your own, you know, check local listings. Some restrictions apply. You got to take a look and see uh, if your local town races are moved or not. Like Charlotte, for example, is moved. So, number one, if you want to request a ballot, um, you can do so. County boards of elections are starting to send out the absentee by mail. Oh, by the way, the first vote of 2022 uh, has now been cast. It was an unaffiliated Voter out of Johnston County using a Republican ballot. And they were voting from Indonesia. It was a mail-in absentee ballot. And the first vote in the Charlotte City Council elections, according to Joe Bruno at WSOC, District 7 Democrat who voted from Tunisia. Which, like, I don't know about you, but I was just happy to hear that it's a living person. That's Oh, come on, Democrats. I kid. In primaries, voters affiliated with the political party will be given a ballot of candidates for that party. So if you are registered Republican, you're going to get a GOP ballot. Registered Democrat, you're going to get a Democrat ballot. Libertarians do not have any primaries this year. Voters in approximately 30 municipalities across the state are going to go go to the polls to elect mayors and city council, town council members. These municipal elections occur at the same time. They're going to be on the same ballot as the primary contest. If you are unaffiliated, you get to pick. You get to pick whether you want a Republican primary ballot, a Democrat primary ballot, or an unaffiliated primary ballot, which, I mean, really, why would you take that? So you get to pick in the primary, like, I'm probably going to choose the Democrat ballot because I think that there are races that I can vote in. I think I'm, well, I know I am. I'm outside Charlotte city limits by about a block, which I'm totally fine with. (laughs) I'm totally fine with that, but I'm in Mecklenburg County. So I got to check and see what my, uh, my ballot's going to look like as we just moved into our house. Now in North Carolina, any eligible voter can request, receive and vote an absentee ballot by mail. You don't need it. We call it no excuse absentee ballot. So you don't even have to make up some, I mean, offer some excuse No reason. You just, if you want to vote absentee, you can vote absentee. But keep in mind, the absentee ballot request deadline is May 10th. So if you're thinking about requesting it, just request it before May 10th. And because that's the deadline. And as we all know, thanks to the recent litigation, deadlines to request ballots is racist. (laughs) By mail voters is what they call the voters, by mail voters in 2022 have to have the ballots. So if you request your absentee ballot and then you vote it by mail, 
you got to have two witnesses sign it. Remember, last year, the, or the last presidential election, the Democrats sued and they got the collusive agreement with the Attorney General's office and the Board of Elections that took that down to one signature. Um, actually, no, I kid. It was the, the legislature took it down to one signature, but it was only for that one year. So now it goes back to you got to have two signatures. Um, what else here? The regular voter registration deadline is April 22. So if you want to register to vote, do it before April 22nd. You cannot change your party affiliation after the voter registration deadline, and you may not change your party affiliation at any early voting site. You can register, though, and vote at the same time, called in-person registration uh, at the early voting site. So you can register, but you cannot change party affiliation during the early voting stage, okay? In-person early voting, so show up you know, at the, the central location, That's going to start on Thursday, April 28th and runs through Saturday, May 14th, Election Day, May 17th. And now you are all caught up with the particulars of the election. News Talk 1110-993-WBT, the Pete Callender Show, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Republicans have outraised Democrats by 82% in North Carolina House races. This is an examination done by Ballotpedia.org, and, uh, which is sort of a repository website for all things elections and such. And it's a piece by Kaylin Stralow. 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 I don't know how she... I think that's how she pronounces it. Anyway, this looked at 1-2021 through 12-2021. So the entire year of 2021, while campaign finance is not the only factor in electoral outcomes, successful fundraising can provide a candidate with advantages during a campaign. Fundraising can also indicate party momentum. Again, my standard caveat here is candidates matter. The candidate matters. So top fundraisers in North Carolina House of Representatives is for the, um, you know, running for the state house seats. Okay, so not congressional seats, but state house seats. Here we go. In the Democratic Party, the top fundraisers were Greg Meyer at one hundred and two thousand dollars. Cynthia Ball at 96K, Robert Reeves, 93,000, Gail Edcock at 76,000, Brian Farkas at 76,000. And yes, I paid particular attention when pronouncing those names so as to not jeopardize our FCC license. Okay, so the top fundraiser for the Democrats at the House level in the General Assembly is Greg Meyer at 102 grand, and then Cynthia Ball at 96,000. Let's take a look at the Republican side. So 101,000, 102,000 is the top performer on the Democrat side. Top performer on the Republican side, House Speaker Tim Moore. Which, by the way, not a surprise that the majority party makes more in fundraising. And not a surprise that the leader of the majority party brings in more fundraising. Not This is normal. How much did Tim Moore bring in? $641,000 
He alone brought in more money than all of the other Democrats I listed combined. Next up is John Bell at 130,000, Brendan Jones at 129,000, Aaron Paré at 120,000, and John Zoka at 114. Every one of the top five Republicans brought in more money than the number one Democrat. They all eclipsed him. Overall, Democratic office holders and candidates raised $1.05 million, a little bit more than a million dollars during the year 2021. Republican office holders and candidates raised $2.52 million. The top five largest Democrat fundraisers are responsible for almost half of all the Democratic House fundraising. The, um, the top five Republicans were responsible for uh, a little bit more. So Democrats had like 42% and the Republicans had like 45%. Again, that is from Ballotpedia.org. Now... Dr. Andy Jackson, who is the director of the Civitas Center for Public Integrity at the John Locke Foundation, along with Jim Sterling, a research fellow at the John Locke Foundation, they put together a uh, rundown of uh, potentially competitive districts at the state level, which are on the ballot this year. Democrats don't believe they're going to win in November, they write. That is a reasonable conclusion to make based on candidate filing data from the North Carolina State Board of Elections. It can be difficult for parties to recruit candidates for races they probably cannot win. Why would people put themselves through that pain when there is little chance of prevailing? Now, there are two schools of thought about this, by the way. One is that you want to uh, field as many candidates as possible in as many races as possible because it helps to generate more turnout. If I know uh, that my vote isn't going to matter because I live in a solid blue city and I just sit home, well, I am also then depriving other candidates that I might have otherwise voted for on the ballot. I'm depriving them of support. Like if I say, oh, I really care about my city council district race, but I don't have a choice, so I'm not going to go vote. But had I went to vote, had I gone voting, uh, I would have actually voted up ballot for judges, for state lawmaker races or presidential race, whatever. And it works up and down the ballot in that way. So there is a, the other school of thought is you put more people in the field. So you generate more turnout. But on the other side, from a party standpoint, if you don't field candidates, it then allows you to marshal resources into the competitive seats and you can put volunteers there and you can put more uh, money into those races to try to win them. But by this metric of uh, uh, that Jackson and Sterling are looking at, by how many candidates have they been able to file, the relative lack of Democratic candidates for the General Assembly is a sign, they say, that rank-and-file Democrats themselves believe that they are in for a rough ride in the general elections. They failed to recruit candidates for 41 out of the 170 state legislative districts, or about 24% of all of the races. By comparison, Republicans only failed to recruit candidates in about 6% of the races. Is the Democrats' problem that there are too many safe Republican districts? I'll have that answer up next. News 
Sports Talk 1110 and 99.3 Ho! WBT. And uh, if you want to weigh in on any of the topics presented here, or just chat, you know, 704-570-1110 and uh, 1-800-WBT-1110. So Democrats don't believe they're going to win in November. Oh, but hang on a second. How about right now you have a chance to win some tickets to the WBT-100 Anniversary Celebration going on on uh, Saturday, April 9th at 7.30. And if you're caller 11 right now, you'll get some tickets for this once-in-a-lifetime 100-year celebration with me and everybody else from WBT. It is the largest group of WBT alumni ever gathered together for a single event. We're going to be inducting three people into the WBT Hall of Fame. And it's presented by the Center for TMJ and Sleep Apnea. Thank you very much for those folks and their uh, sponsorship of the event for help making it happen. You can uh, call now, 11th caller at 704-570-1110 or 1-800-WBT-1110. And if for some reason you are not lucky enough to win the tickets, you can go to WBT.com and get some there, as well as all of the event details. So... Dr. Andy Jackson and Jim Sterling with the John Locke Foundation looked at this one metric, albeit it's only one metric, but they looked at how many candidates the Democratic Party has been able to attract and and recruit and field in the state legislative races. And they failed to recruit candidates in about a quarter, 24% of all races. Republicans are fielding candidates in 94% of all of the races. So is the Democrats problem here that there are just too many Republican districts, you know, gerrymandering and all? No, actually, the answer is no to that question. Republicans were able to get candidates to run in a majority of districts that are the most difficult for them to win. Something Democrats failed to do. Even more troubling for Democrats is that they failed to recruit candidates for 11 districts where they should have an at least an outside shot of winning in a favorable political climate. This is what the this is what the lawsuit over the gerrymandering and the redistricting turned into the Democrat protection plan. Because they know that this is going to be a very bad election cycle for them for many reasons, but. They utilized the courts to try to protect themselves, to try to protect these seats in a year that was not going to go well for them. And this is the metric that Jackson and Sterling have pulled in order to basically highlight this fact. That if you're not confident that you're going to do well, you're not fielding candidates in the districts where you've got a shot to win. You're not even fielding candidates there. Why? When Republicans are fielding candidates in districts that they probably don't have much of a shot at winning, but they got more of a shot than they did two years ago. It's a sign of confidence. Recruitment failures. They highlight Senate District 26 that's represented by the Senate President Pro Tem Phil Berger. His district was one of the primary targets of progressive redistricting lawsuits. It went from an R plus 11 which is a Republican plus 11 by percentages. That's a, it's, a, it's an easier district, an R plus 11. Went down to an R plus 6 after the redistricting. Despite those improved conditions in the 26th, Democrats still not able to recruit a challenger to Phil Berger. That frees him up 
to devote more of his time and efforts to helping other Republican senators and candidates win. That really, that's the biggest failure. That's, I mean, he's the head of the Senate. If you can't attack him, you're running against Republican legislative priorities and policies, then he's the guy you go after, right? And you couldn't find anybody to run against Phil Berger to make that case and make him spend some time and money in his district on his reelection. So if you don't challenge, it frees him up. And so they conclude you can't beat someone with no one. And Democrats have severely handicapped themselves by not recruiting a fuller slate of candidates. All right. Uh, So, again, that was over at the John Locke Foundation. Not to be confused with John Lott. One is John Locke, L-O-C-K-E. The other is John Lott. And he's the guy who wrote the book years ago, More Guns, Less Crime. He's a he's he predominantly focused and has focused much of his work over his career on uh, gun crime and stats and data and, and that sort of thing. John Lott writing over at Real Clear Politics. He has now put together some research. Am I even allowed to say this? Am I going to get canceled if I read this headline? Am I going to get am I going to get in trouble? Here's the headline. New peer reviewed research finds evidence of 2020 voter fraud. By a margin of 52% to 40%, voters believe that cheating affected the outcome of the U.S. presidential election in 2020. 52 to 40%. That's a 12% delta that say cheating affected the outcome. That's per a Rasmussen Report survey from this month, and it stands in stark contrast to the countless news stories editorializing about no evidence of voter fraud and the myth of voter fraud. It isn't just Republicans who believe cheating occurred, by the way. 34% of Democrats believe it. A third. 38% of those who somewhat support President Biden also believe cheating occurred and affected the outcome. A broad range of Americans think this, actually. Men, women... All age groups, whites, neither white nor black, Republicans, those who are neither Republicans nor Democrats, every job category, all income groups, except those making more than 200000 a year, and all education groups, except those who went to graduate school. So you really, you're starting to get a picture of who the, who the deniers are. New research by John Lott, forthcoming in a peer-reviewed economics journal, That's going to get canceled. Public Choice is the name of the journal. Peer-reviewed, it finds evidence of around 255,000 excess votes, possibly as many as 368,000 for Joe Biden in six swing states where Donald Trump lodged accusations of fraud. Biden only carried these states, which were Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, those six states, he carried them by 313,000 votes. So if it's on the low end of what Lot found, it might not have changed the outcome. If it's around the 255 excess votes, if that's where it is, and depending on where they are spread out, right, it may not have swung the race the other direction. But if it goes all the way up 
to what the top end is, as many as 368,000, well, now that is, that's enough. That would be enough. Excluding Michigan, the gap was 159,000. So there was like almost 100,000 in Michigan alone. The point of this work is not to contest the 2020 election, he says, but to point out that we have a real problem that needs to be dealt with. Americans must have confidence in future elections. And I agree. This has been the this has been my consistent point. I don't care who's committing the fraud. I want it all to stop. It all has to be policed. We have to have these rules in place so we have we have confidence that our election system is credible. And I don't care who that offends. And I'm tired of being gaslit and told that I'm trying to suppress people's votes. You know who I'm trying to suppress? I'm trying to suppress vote fraudsters. That's who I'm trying to suppress. I don't want them to vote multiple times and cancel out legitimate votes. Talk 1110 and 993-WBT. Pete Callender Show, 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. One of those numbers John called, and then he won some tickets. I'm not giving you away any... Hold your calls. I'm not giving... I'm not... We already gave him away. John won. John and Cornelius, he's a winner! Congrats, John in Cornelius. And uh, we'll be doing more. You can keep listening. We're we got lots of chances, but if you can't wait and you just got to get the tickets right now, go to WBT.com and uh, pick yourself up some tickets while we still have them. All right. So John Lott, who is, I have his title here. Hang on. Uh, president of the Crime Prevention Research Center. Uh, and until January of 2021, he was the senior advisor for research and statistics at the U.S. Department of Justice's Office of Legal Policy, where he dealt with issues of vote fraud. He has now done this research examining uh, excess votes anywhere from about a quarter of a million to almost 368,000. So 255 to 368. And if it's on the upper end of that scale, and depending on where they are spread out in these five states, then... Is it five or six? Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Six states. And uh, I was told there would be no math. Okay. Uh, it could. This could have impacted the results of the election. And he says, but the point is not to contest the 2020 election. The point here is that we have a real problem, and it has to be dealt with. Some Trump allies, like attorney Sidney Powell, who famously promised to release the Kraken and then provided no evidence, have helped to discredit these concerns. I've said this as well. Some of the worst ambassadors for election integrity are the people who are screaming the loudest that the election was stolen. Seriously. And I'm sorry if that hurts to hear it. And you don't have to agree with me, but that that's what it looks like to me. I don't want to be associated with people that running they're running around screaming that, you know, there's no reason to vote. Nobody should vote anymore. And giving like these veiled QAnon symbols and such. No, I'm I'm out. I don't want anything to do with you. 
So at some point, though, then you should ask yourself, are they actually an ally? Are they actually trying to advance the ball on election integrity? Or are they discrediting it? All right, I'll take my tinfoil hat off now. Observers, now, Republicans, we're in a catch-22. I understand this. Observers, uh, they said they, they were not allowed to watch the vote counts in some places. Uh, they were prevented from seeing um, other pieces of evidence. They could not provide proof because they couldn't get subpoenas because judges wouldn't give them to them. So this was the catch-22. Recounts, not really useful either because if you're just recounting the fraudulent ballots in the first place, you're going to get the same totals, right? So all of this I understand. And I'm not a denier that election fraud occurs. I actually make the argument it does occur. In fact, chances are more than likely, more than likely, that election fraud occurs every single election. I'd say it's probably about 100% probability. Every single election has some type of fraud, whether it's intentional or not, whether it's widespread or not, there's some level of fraud going on, okay? Because you can't, what am I to believe otherwise, that somewhere along the line, everybody just decided, okay, okay, elections are becoming even more important now and power's becoming more centralized in the hands of fewer people. So yeah, we won't do fraud anymore in order to get control of the levers of government. No, no, no. I mean, we may have done the ballot stuffing and the vote buying and all of that stuff for, you know, a century or two, but we totally give it up now that the power is becoming centralized in the, in the halls of government. That's a believable argument, right? So I believe that the it is more logical than not that election fraud occurs every single election. Signature verification. This is also uh, an attempt at uh, integrity, a measure for integrity. Signature verification. But this is difficult because when you go in, you ever do this where you have to sign the book and you think that person who's the volunteer from the Board of Elections, do you think that they're spending a lot of time verifying that that's your signature? No. Many states actually didn't even try to verify signatures in the 2020 election. If somebody mailed in multiple ballots, there was no way to catch them. How are you comparing a signature that goes to one county versus another county? And without tamper-resistant photo IDs, fraud is very difficult to prove. So unless somebody tries voting multiple times in the same precinct, there's really no way to catch them. More from John Lott's piece up next on News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. I'll tell you how he did his research, what he found, but also a transparent voting process that can't be corrupted, hacked, or cheated. Yeah, Democrats are going to hate it. Details on that, too. Up next.